Shall we pray? Our gracious and loving Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight. Amen. Well, can I start with a question? If you're a Christian, why do you love God? Knowing your modesty, I'm sure that some of you are immediately thinking, I don't love God nearly as much as I should. But, but please put those thoughts to one side. Uh, another question is like it. When you do something good, why do you do it? Uh, there can be a number of reasons. Uh, I might do something good because I've been told to do it. Uh, I could love God because Jesus says that it's the greatest commandment. Or, or I may do good because I don't want to be criticised or punished for doing the wrong thing. Uh, I may love Jesus because he is beautiful and irresistible. Or I may do something good because it makes me feel good. Uh, I recently gave some money uh, to help orphaned Ukrainian children uh, and I did feel good afterwards. You want to feel good? Give some money. Uh, retail therapy doesn't work for me, but giving therapy does, as it does for many people. I think the question of why we do good lies at the heart of our reading uh, from the book of uh, Daniel today. There are other things we need to consider, what, like God's help and, and willingness to help those who are in need. I don't, uh, but, but if you've been here for the last couple of weeks, uh, you'll know that uh, I'm not sure that this is actual history. Uh, I don't think we're supposed to think that these events actually happened. The satire is too strong, the humour is too obvious. Uh, it's like slapstick. The satire um, really sort of sets us up to think, well, what is going on here. Uh, if you believe that these events happened, that's fine. Uh, I think that we will still come to the same theological conclusions. And I certainly think that God is capable of saving someone in a fiery furnace. Let's face it, he made us out of stardust. We all started in a star sometime. And of course, he raised his son from the dead. For those of you who, do not, uh, who haven't been here for the last couple of weeks, we're looking at the Old Testament book of Daniel. Uh, it's a story set in Babylon in the 6th century BC. Uh, this was after Jerusalem had been destroyed by King Nebuchadnezzar and his Babylonian army. And he had taken some leading Jews into exile in Babylon. But although that is its setting, I don't think it's history in a conventional sense. Uh, it's a satire written in the second century before Jesus. Its purpose in these early chapters is to poke fun at the Greek rulers of Israel at the time in the second century BC. It teaches about God and encourages the Jews to stick close to their God through hard times, and that's the same God that we worship. We've already met Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. 
They are portrayed as three fine young Jewish men who had been taken into exile in Babylon with Daniel. Our story opens with King Nebuchadnezzar causing a huge statue of a god to be set up in Babylon, which is in modern-day Iraq, about 2,300 kilometres from Jerusalem, so a long way away. The statue was about 30 metres tall. The Babylonians had a number of gods. The initial Jewish audience of the book of Daniel would already be thinking, this isn't going to end well. The second commandment forbade making graven images, including statues of gods. And the first commandment forbade worshipping them. So the Jews were to have only one god. To bow down and worship another would have gone totally against what they should do. But there's something odd about the proportions of the statue. It's tall and skinny, not broad and powerful. It's about as tall as this church, right at the very top, but only three metres wide. That's a ratio of 10 to 1, when normally statues work with a ratio of 6 to 1. Tall and skinny is a bit unsettling for a god, as if it's a parody of paganism and religions that had statues. The storyline is simple. All the officials of Nebuchadnezzar's administration were gathered for the dedication of the statue. They were told... They were told that at the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. And I'm sure you've realised that that is incredibly vain. It's a profound exercise of power, not only over the officials, but over everyone in the lands controlled by Babylon, which was big. So parts of Egypt, northern Saudi Arabia, over to Iran, half of Turkey, right up uh, north, uh, all of Iraq. It's a big area to have everyone falling down and worshipping. Uh, but the command is also so, is so silly, it's funny. It's absurd, and the absurdity is a familiar ingredient of humour. Every time any one of this, uh, in this huge empire made music, effectively everyone else had to fall down and worship. It's not just everyone must worship when the king ordered a trumpet to be sounded in his palace in the capital. Whenever someone set up a musical instrument, whether to practice or for a festival or a party, everyone who heard it had to fall down and worship. But if you saw someone unexpectedly bow down and start worship, I'm sure you'd be thinking, oh, I may be missing out on something. I may not have heard it and I could be thrown into a furnace. I'd better bow down and worship myself. And you can just imagine what that would look like. Um, you would have, just, just visualise it in your mind. I ring the church bell, 
And not only us, everyone here, but everyone in Glebe Point Road has to fall down and worship. Uh, and then once you get down to Broadway, they'd be going, oh, perhaps someone rang the bell up, up at St John's. Oh, I better bow down and worship. And then up into the city and into North Sydney, and then someone might get hop onto a train uh, or a, a plane and start worshipping. And sooner you'd be up in Brisbane and down in Melbourne and Perth, everyone in the Empire of Australia, just because I rang the bell. And you're laughing because you're supposed to laugh. It is silly. And what is it that we're supposed to think? Who would be so stupid and vain? And the answer is, well, anyone who wants the Jews who first heard this in the second century to worship someone other than their own God. The author is saying to his initial audience, you, your Greek overlords are as stupid as Nebuchadnezzar because those Greek overlords wanted the Jews to worship their king and their gods. The absurdity is emphasised by the repetition of the titles of the officials and the, the names of the uh, instruments. When I was talking to Susie beforehand, she said it reads like Monty Python. You can just imagine John, John Cleese reading it out. It is supposed to be ridiculous. And you know, just if you think about it, either all music would have had to stop throughout the empire or everyone would be doing nothing else but falling down and worshipping. So it's probably unlikely that Nebuchadnezzar, who had defeated the Assyrians and founded the largest empire in the Middle East at the time, was that stupid. He was a pretty successful king. So why the exaggeration? Why the satire? Because the Jews reading the book of Daniel in the second century could look through the gloss of this sixth century Babylon and see the target was the Greeks who were oppressing them. And the satire and the gross exaggeration is the author's way of saying, just think how vain and stupid our Greek overlords are because they don't know our God. They don't know the God who made everything. And they don't know our place. We, they don't know the way that our God loves us and cares us and has a special place for us. They don't know anything about our God. And yet they think that they are so great because they want us to worship their statues. One Greek king was called Antiochus, and he wanted to be called Antiochus Epiphanes, which means God manifest. This guy thought he was God, and the Jews were expected to worship him rather than their Lord, the God of Israel. And you read the histories and you read some of the intertestamental books, and you'll see that they suffered badly because they didn't worship Antiochus but they were prepared to put up with that suffering because they knew the things that we see in our book today. That there is only one God to worship and that he will look after them. The story continues. Three of Daniel's fellow Jewish exiles, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, were dobbed in 
for not worshipping the Babylonian god. They were brought before Nebuchadnezzar, who reminded them of the penalty for not worshipping when the music started. He said, but if you do not worship it, you will be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what god will be able to rescue you from my hand? So the conflict is being set up as a contest between the god of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego and Nebuchadnezzar and his gods. The answer they give when required to fall down and worship the tall, skinny, golden god is the crucial part of the story. They say, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the god we serve is able to deliver us or to save us from it. And he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold that you have set up. The clear message of this passage is, say no. When you're commanded or enticed to worship something other than the one true God, say no. Keep the first commandment. You shall have no gods but me. When you are asked to do something you know God would not approve, just say no. The question for us is, why did the three friends say no? Even though they knew it may cost them their lives. Why did they stay faithful to God? When you read it, there's no discussion among themselves about why they should do it. They just did it. There's no reflection on the God who had saved them out of slavery in Egypt or led them through the wilderness for 40 years. There's no talk about the Ten Commandments and no reflection on whether they're still relevant today, a thousand years after they were first written, and whether they apply in Babylon. There's no mention of the commandments here. They did not do it for the reward of being saved. They acknowledged that their God can save, but they contemplated that he may not save them on this occasion. They did not do it to prove Nebuchadnezzar wrong, because that they admitted that they may still die in the furnace. They did not do it because they knew they would be rewarded with eternal life. There's no mention of that here. They did it because they knew it was the right thing to do. They knew who they were. They, they knew how they wanted to live, and they chose to live accordingly or die accordingly. They said no because that was the right thing to do, full stop. And we'll come back to that because it's, it's, it's obviously quite challenging. But let's just have a quick look at the rest of the story. The satire becomes more obvious and extreme. The furnace is heated up seven times hotter than normal. Hotter, hotter, hotter! Uh, how would they know, by the way? They didn't have thermometers in those days. Don't worry about that. Why seven times? Because the author is using exaggeration to say that nothing is too hot for God. As you suffer, be assured nothing is too hot 
for God. Nothing is beyond what he can handle. Nothing that we need to say no to is too big, hot or daunting for God to help us through. Then Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego are thrown, fully clothed, even with their hats, the detail, humour again, into the furnace. And the scene becomes even more ridiculous because while the three in their clothes and hats survived, the king's servants were killed by the flames even though they stood outside the furnace. When Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego came out of the furnace, they were not even singed. And there was not a whiff of fire or smoke about them. Something that was too hot for the king's men outside the furnace was not too hot for God's men in the furnace. During their ordeal, a fourth man had joined them. Some people over the years have seen this as a pre-incarnate Jesus. But there's no hint of that here. And it's better to see it as an angel of God come to comfort and sustain his faithful servants. And we should be struck by Nebuchadnezzar's response to the miraculous act of salvation. First, Nebuchadnezzar says, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. And when they do, he says, praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. And just think what's happening here. The author has got the king of Babylon acting as the narrator of this uh, story of assurance of the power and love and salvation of the Jews' god. I mean, that's pretty silly, isn't it? And... Wonderfully, the worship of God, the God of Israel, became legal in Babylon. But this is not conversion. Nebuchadnezzar did not change his allegiance from the Babylonian God to the God of the uh, God Most High. He did not trust God Most High. He did not humble himself before the God Most High. He saw just the obvious. The God Most High is powerful and saves those who who trust him. But the king did not take the next step. He would not have said no like the three did when faced with the furnace. It's like when our families and friends see the difference God makes in our lives and say, good for you. I'm glad it works for you but they don't think trusting God would be good for them. Often because they would not want to have to say no. We see the contrast between the three friends and Nebuchadnezzar. The three three friends worshipped God because it was the right thing to do, while Nebuchadnezzar praised God because God was strong and powerful. And Nebuchadnezzar had seen his power and that had impressed him. But he neither loved nor trusted the God of Israel. I'm sure you've already worked out the application of this story in our lives. Life can feel like living in a furnace. I'm sure you have felt that 
not necessarily because you're being persecuted for your faith, but perhaps because of that. But, it, but just because life can be hard. If you live in social housing, you may have neighbours who struggle with drugs or mental health issues or are always gossiping or partying and they make your life so miserable you feel like you're living in a furnace. Or, you play, or your place of work is a very competitive environment. Maybe a university or the media or a government department and fragile egos and vaunting ambition and the anger that comes from years of disappointment surround you with people who really know how to be nasty and to make your life miserable. They are people who never give credit where credit is due and undermine you at every step. Or you may have a dysfunctional family where the thought of every get-together for a birthday, wedding, funeral or Christmas creates anxiety. It's like stepping into a furnace and you just don't know how hot it's going to get this time. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego trusted God and so should we. And the message here seems to be that we should do that simply because it's the right thing to do. I know for some that will not be a good enough reason. Why, why should I say no? Why don't I get to have a say in what I should say no to? Well, we do at, at many levels. But at the ultimate level of who we trust, who we owe our allegiance to, and how we will live in obedience, there is only one answer. We trust God. Saying no because it is the right thing to do is not the end of the story. We will see God has great plans for those who trust him, and we'll see that in the coming weeks. And God does help those who trust him. We saw that today. But I do want us to see the starkness of the message today. Say no. We will see when we get further into the book that Daniel shares some wonderful insights into God's care for us and visions of what lies ahead for faithful people who persevere. But that should not distract us from where it starts with faith like that of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. The contribution of the third chapter of Daniel is to see God's help for those who trust him and to see the first step is simply to trust God, to say no to other gods and other competing attractions. It's not command, nor is there any inducement or bribery. It does not say, be faithful and you will get an unimaginably wonderful reward. It's just the right thing to do. We see some of the right things to do in our second reading, but I don't intend to go through them today. But it's worth reflecting on them to see where to say no and when to love like Jesus. Well, you're about to hear a musical instrument, so I suggest you, no, not fall down and bow. Just stand up and praise our faithful God. Please stand. Mm -hmm. 